I'll be reading again from the, uh, as I customarily do, the English Standard Version translation. I'll just make a comment about that. That's not because it's somehow the official translation of, uh, of our church. We would encourage you to actually read out of several of the most excellent translations that you can find today. Uh, the Venerable King James. Uh, love the King James. That's a little difficult language-wise. The New King James. Uh, a great and faithful updating to the, uh, the King James Version. Uh, many of us cut our teeth on the uh, New American Standard Bible, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Great translation. And then uh, the NIV came along. Uh, it reached its apex of, of best translation in 1984, so don't go beyond 1984. The NIV, 84, great translation. And then the ESV, which came out you know, within the last two decades. Also a wonderful translation. But it is good for us to be conversant with several translations because no single set of Bible translators has ever been infallible. And there are nuances and differences. It's helpful to read these differences, helpful to see these differences. And then to see how often these great scholars who confess the inerrancy authority of Scripture uh, really do agree as they translate. They really do agree. And that gives us great confidence that the modern translations which we have uh, faithfully represent uh, the true word of God. Now, reading from Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a purinard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world and she has, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enable us to understand the words of this passage and an understanding to be moved by your Spirit to embrace them fully, unreservedly, with our whole hearts, that we might understand and know Jesus more deeply. 
We pray that we remember that the words of Scripture are words of everlasting life. And apart from what you have told us about your son Jesus, we would have nothing, nothing at all in terms of eternal salvation. And so we pray this morning, enlighten our hearts and minds in the knowledge of Jesus. Move in us to hear these words and to respond in faith. Enable us to to love Jesus above all else. In his name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want to begin with is really the placement of this story. And I want us to recognize something that we've seen before in the Gospel of Mark. Sometimes Mark will place a story between two parentheses, so to speak, an introductory kind of thing and a concluding kind of thing, and there's a great contrast in between. And we saw this earlier where uh, Jesus cleansed the temple and beforehand was the cursing of the fig tree and afterwards there was the parable given to the, uh, the leaders of Israel about the unfaithful stewards of the vineyards. And all of that was basically to say that what Jesus was doing in the cleansing of the temple was in fact judgment upon Israel, just as the cursing of the fig tree represented that and the intent of the par- teaching of the parable was exactly that. Well, here again, we have this kind of sandwiching of a story, an incredible story, between two things that, that represent uh, the animosity and hostility of people toward Jesus. So we've got the, the hostility toward Jesus that opens up this passage. This wonderful story about Jesus getting anointed by this woman, great honor to Jesus. And then again, hostility toward Jesus and what Judas Iscariot is intending to do. That highlights the significance and importance of this story. It's a literary placement of the story. It highlights the meaning of the gospel. There are only two ultimate, there are only in the final analysis, two responses to Jesus. In the final analysis, there's only two ultimate and definitive responses to Jesus. You love him or you hate him. You love him or you hate him. Now, the second thing I want us to understand is is in reference to the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John also tells us this story. Here we're given details which the Gospel of Mark and also the Gospel of Matthew, which carries the same story, almost word for word for what Mark says. Uh, We get important details that are omitted there. The most important is that we're explicitly told who this woman is. It, It happens to be Mary. Now, who, what Mary is this? Because there's a multitude of Marys in the Bible. So, John chapter 12, the first eight verses. Here are the other passage. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me. So John's Gospel tells us who this woman is. And her story for 20 centuries has been told throughout Christendom, throughout the world. Everywhere where the gospel has been preached, this story has also been told because it's a presence in the gospels. Mary, sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. These three had a very close, tight-knit relationship to Christ. Now, I want us to think about what kind of insight and truth this story gives us. From one angle, it's about how a number of people viewed Jesus and how they judged Jesus shortly before the end of his ministry. But from another angle, this story actually judges them. It exposes the way human hearts respond to Christ, to God's own Son. This gives us a picture of how people truly, actually are in their standing before God. Of all the things we might look at this passage to learn, I want us to focus upon what seems to be the most important truth and message. How people treat Jesus is the defining indication of their relationship with God and their final destiny. I want you to hear this. How people treat Jesus Christ is the definitive indication of what they think about God and how they treat God and what their final destiny before God is going to be. Where we are with Jesus, that's exactly where we are with God. If we're not right with Jesus, we're not right with God. How we respond to Jesus, how we respond to the message of the gospel exposes exactly what our heart is like in reference to God. The story tells us There's no option for neutrality. There's no place where you can say, I recognize I don't love Jesus, but I don't hate God. That option is not available for you. That option is not available in this world. How we treat Jesus is the truest indication of where you stand before God. Two ultimate responses, either love or hate. Now let's simplify the passage by posing, by looking at two ideas in one question. The first, the hostility toward Jesus that we find in this passage. And then the honor that's due to Jesus, which we find in this passage. And then the question, where are we? Where are we? Where do we stand with Jesus? Now, the hostility toward Jesus shows up in the people that we find in this passage. Uh, First and foremost are the chief priests and the scribes. You know, that's how this passage opens up. 
Now, it's interesting that in the gospel accounts, if you go back and think all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when John the Baptist first began preaching, and then shortly thereafter, we have the rise of Jesus' own ministry where he's preaching. There's some ministry in the Jerusalem, Judea, and then a long time in Galilee. Uh, what you don't find are the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief religious leaders, coming to Jesus, coming to Jesus to learn about who this man is, to really honestly consider what this might be that they've heard from John the Baptist. You don't find that kind of an approach to Jesus. It's pretty much safe to say that the religious leaders of Israel never made any serious effort to understand or to embrace Jesus or to consider who he might actually be, with maybe one notable exception, Nicodemus. Now, do you not see that that is so much like people today? My guess is that every one of you at some point have talked to somebody who dismissed Jesus out of hand, who just simply dismissed Jesus, who, who didn't want to give any consideration to who he is. They didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. They don't care to hear it. They don't think it's worth hearing. Even though almost everyone you might know has some understanding that this person, Jesus, is one of the most significant persons who ever lived. And further, many people understand that he made some rather incredible claims. And there used to be a time when Christianity was much better known than it is today, when people would understand that Jesus claimed things like this, I can forgive sin. I will rise from the dead. I am the Son of God. You have no way to get to the Heavenly Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. People would have understood that Jesus made all those claims, which is, which is a pretty serious set of statements for any kind of human being ever to make. Again, no middle ground. Either they're true or they're false. Either Jesus is who he said he was, or he was some form of a liar. But, the religious leaders of Israel are so much like the way people are today, dismissing Jesus out of hand without giving any serious consideration to who he is. From the beginning, these people were, who represented the spiritual life of Israel were dead set against Christ. Now, at the end of what's going to be Jesus' earthly ministry, they are willing to murder Jesus by a very shaky, stealthy legal process. They know that they hate Jesus. In a moment, we'll say something about that. A second aspect of people here who don't appear to be on the right side of Jesus are some of the disciples. And this is really strange now. Uh, we see this mentioned in verse 4 
where some who were there were indignant. Well, Matthew sort of spills the beans. The some who were there who were indignant happened to include some disciples. Uh, so that indicates that even people who were close to Jesus, who were there at this, this feast, this dinner, eating with Jesus, they weren't yet totally there in terms of embracing everything that Jesus was, everything that Jesus was demonstrating himself to be. Now, let's consider the reaction to what Mary did. The word there is indignation. But it's interesting that the Greek word is much, much stronger. We could say they were highly indignant. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that they scolded Mary. Well, again, the Greek word there is very, very strong. They gave her a severe dressing down in terms of what she was doing. So picture the context there. Picture the social gathering. Now, you understand it's men who are eating together at the table. And Martha is serving, because this is the way it was in the Jewish world at that time. It wasn't like our fellowship luncheons and so forth, where men and women sit together and eat together. And Mary comes in, and she does what she's doing. And if you read both Matthew, Mark, and then John, read it all together, you realize she started by anointing Jesus' head, and then she anointed Jesus' feet, and even cried over his feet and wept with tears. So there's an anointing of head to foot when you put the passages together and look at what's going on. And that's why Jesus could say later, she's anointed my body for burial, inclusive of the whole thing. But the reaction of those people there was this great indignation, this, this great scolding of, of Jesus. And then they say, what a waste. This could have been sold to take care of the poor. Now, look, I don't want you to focus on the fact that they're concerned for the poor. We'll see in a moment how much they're concerned. Who really was fostering that concern? I want you to focus upon their statement, this was a waste. Really? To honor Jesus in this way? Was a waste? Now, I was reading uh, the great Bishop J.C. Ryle, who his writings on this passage were like in the 1870s in England. And you know that what Spurgeon struggled with, what the bishop struggled with as strong Bible-believing Christians, uh, an Anglican, the bishop, Spurgeon, a Baptist, others, what they struggled with was that religion in England was considered to be something proper. Something which you should do in moderation. Something that a gentleman or a lady would do, do their proper service every Sunday, show up and so forth. But it wasn't something that you would go and really talk to people about. The culture of the day said, you must go to church, but don't overdo it. My goodness. It was designed to create cultural 
nominal Christianity. Christians in name only. And the bishop, the good bishop, relates the disciples' reaction that this is a wasted effort on Jesus. You're, you're sacrificing too much for Jesus. You're displaying a bit of fanaticism here for Jesus with the culture of the day in England. We ought to be concerned that our own Christianity is too domesticated, too tame, lived too much within the political correctness of our society. We'll come back to something like that in a moment. But clearly, this does not commend these men and their attitude toward Christ. Whether they understood it or not, whether that's where they wanted to be, it was a form of hostility to Jesus and his witness. There's no question about it. To think that someone could waste himself or waste his resources or waste his wealth on Jesus is hostile to who Jesus truly is. Then we come to Judas. Duplicity and betrayal. Of all the evil done in this world, the evil of Judas rises above it all. Because he knew Christ face to face. He walked and talked and lived and ate and slept and ministered with Jesus throughout at least three years of his ministry. And he behaved as someone who was with it in terms of the rest of the disciples. This kind of duplicity and betrayal is the greatest kind of duplicity and betrayal there can be that anyone could ever commit. To carry the facade of being a Christian without the reality of being a Christian. It is far better that you live your life as an outright infidel than that you would ever pretend to be a Christian. It is far better that you live outright the honesty of who you really are, than ever to pretend to be better than who you are. Worst of all, to pretend that you are a Christian. But that's Judas. That's Judas. John's Gospel brings us an important perspective here that he's at the center of those who were uh, basically saying this is a waste to pour this expensive perfume upon Christ. And we notice what is said in verse 6 of John chapter 12, that this he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So that which infected Judas so deeply sadly spilled out and infected the other disciples so that his voice and their voice become the same in terms of indignation at what Mary did. Judas illustrates something Jesus taught on a number of occasions. You cannot love both God and money. Jesus betrayed Jesus was betrayed by Judas because Judas loved money and hated God. Now, let me make some observations about this hostility. Now, I want you to notice that we're talking about a very religious culture, the Jews, very religious culture of the day. Uh, very few Jews would ever say, I'm not religious during that time. It was normative. The ones who ran the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the, all of those people considered themselves to be exceptionally religious. Now, here's the point. If such people who consider themselves to be exceptionally religious can connect murder to their religion, there isn't any sin in principle which cannot be tightly connected to the practice of religious devotion if the religion that is professed and held isn't the truth. If the religion that a person holds and profess and practices isn't the truth, it will become a force for evil. There's no question about it. Brothers and sisters, those who are brute atheists cannot sin any worse than those who hold to a false religion. If our religious devotion isn't precisely, truly, genuinely fixed on Jesus, if Jesus Christ isn't the very center of our religious devotion and commitment, if we are trusting in anything else other than the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus to atone for our sins, then we're hostile to Jesus. We're on the wrong side of God. We're on the side of damnation. Now, in contrast to this, the second idea that we look at is the honor that's done to Jesus. And we begin with the question, well, who is this woman? Well, we know it's Mary. John describes her as the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. So she's one who has witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. She's heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, will live again. She's heard it. She's seen it. She believes it. Now, this is the same Mary that we find back in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. An important story where Jesus and the disciples come to the house of Martha and 
Mary chooses to sit at the feet of Jesus. She's been a faithful friend and a faithful disciple of Jesus for a very long time, throughout a good portion of his ministry. Now consider the cost of what she does. Uh, Mark carefully records uh, how this uh, flask of nard, pure nard, was evaluated. 300 denarii. A denarii was about a a farm laborer's uh, average day of wage. It was a year's worth of work, essentially. We don't know how and why she had such an expensive bottle of perfume. But I want you to think about why it could have been so very important to her. We read of no father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The indication there is that they were three grown siblings, still relatively young, living together, unmarried, which meant their parents were gone. It's not at all unlikely that this nard, pure nard, worth as much, was Mary's inheritance. It's even within the realm of Jewish custom that this was her dowry. That they, they didn't have a bank to go bank all their money in, in terms of an inheritance. So an inheritance might be something of great and precious value. And especially a dowry would be something that would have a great and precious value because the commodity of this kind of perfume was just as good as a commodity of gold or silver, but far easier to keep and far easier to transport. Whatever it might be, whether it was dowry, whether it was inheritance, whether it was both, whether something like this, this was exceptionally precious to her. This was worth an incredibly great amount, both financially and in terms of where she was personally. Don't separate a, a woman and her perfume. <laughs> it was a meaningful possession which she had, which she then used in this way. Now, what about her motivation? Well, a natural motivation would have been incredibly deep gratitude to Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. I mean, which is worth more, you know? Uh, raising my you know, brother from the dead or holding on to this perfume. Of course, it's so happy to do this, even out of a natural sense of gratitude. But Jesus points to another motivation far deeper. It seems to be something that happened with Mary that almost has supernatural insight to it. Verse 8, Jesus says, Mary has anointed his body beforehand for burial. We're not told how Mary had this, how Mary knew this to be an appropriate action. But it seems as though Mary had some better insight into the approaching death of Jesus than his disciples did. It seems that she had a strong insight into the eminence in terms of the approach of Jesus' death that she already knew and understood that all the many times that Jesus has said that he was going to die, and even that he was going to go to Jerusalem to die, that he was going to be betrayed, it seems as though she was anticipating this, that she understood that this was going to take place. She seemed to understood, understand what Jesus said in verse 7, you will not always have me. So Jesus says she anoints his body in anticipation of his death and burial. Now, Jesus responds to this remarkable action of Mary 
in verse 9, by decreeing, this will be proclaimed throughout the entire world as a testimony to what she's done. That the honor that this woman did to Jesus would be an everlasting memorial as long as the gospel is preached. Everywhere it would be remembered. It tells us how Jesus valued what she did for him. In fact, I want you to consider the contrast. Everywhere the gospel is preached, the betrayal of Judas is remembered because it was the most evil act of any human being in all of human history. In contrast, what Mary does in a kind of wonderful parallelism, but a contrasting parallelism, the opposite, this wonderful thing she does for Jesus, also connected to his death, will always be remembered. Now, why do you think that's the way the story's all about? Why? To emphasize, to hit us with the strongest impact that there are two responses to Jesus. Hostility, hatred, murder. Honor, love, adoration. Only two. No other way. No other way to consider Jesus. When you die, and you will, you will stand before Jesus. So incredibly, incredibly glad to see him. Or you will cower in the deepest fear. Either your love will draw you to Christ or your heart's hatred will cause you to fear what he will say to you on that day. Now, how did it come about that Mary reached this point in her life where she honored Jesus like this? You go back to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Listen carefully. So the disciples are traveling along. They enter this village. A woman named Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. She has a sister called Mary who sits herself at Jesus' feet, listening to his word. But Martha's distracted with all of her preparations. She comes to Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving by myself? That's a little bit of the message thrown in there with the ESV. Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You will grow in your love for Jesus by spending time with Jesus. You will grow in your relationship with Jesus by sitting at his feet and listening to him. 
if you're a Christian. This is the good part. The necessary part. The most important part. Keeping Jesus front and center so that your heart grows in love toward Him. If you're not a Christian, hear this story. Be concerned. Be alarmed. But don't despair. All of us begin not loving Jesus. We may have come to Jesus when we were little children and began to love him then. But none of us were born into this world loving Jesus. We all began this world and this journey on the wrong side of God. But God is gracious. God is loving. And when His Holy Spirit begins to speak to your heart and begins to convict you that what you need is Jesus, that's His grace and His mercy toward you. If you don't know Jesus, hear what Jesus said. Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come. Let's pray. Father, Please help us who are Christians to rest always and entirely upon Jesus and all that he's done for us, all that he's done for us. The great gift of his death upon the cross, the great gift of his perfect righteousness to us. Father, deliver any of us who are Christians in name only from that terrible, terrible blindness and self-deception. If there's anyone here who really doesn't know Jesus this morning, Father, move him, move her to see Jesus, to really see Jesus, and to want Jesus, to desire Jesus, that you might work in hearts to hear his voice saying, come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.